to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 7th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 17. In today's text, the author of Hebrews exhorts his hearers to consider Jesus as they run their race, struggling against sin, and receiving discipline from their Heavenly Father, who intends to bring them into a share of His holiness. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor William Turgeson. Pastor Turgeson serves at the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer in Peekskill, New York. Pastor Turgeson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you, Pastor Apple. So we get started today, Pastor. Talk to us about the book of Hebrews, any context that we should keep in mind as we prepare to look at this section of chapter 12. Yeah, Hebrews is it seems to have been written to a Hebrew Christian congregation, probably in Rome, somewhere in the 50s or 60s. Nobody's really sure exactly when. And, uh, and, and the writer to the Hebrews is concerned about the congregation being tempted to leave the Christian faith and to revert to Judaism. Uh, there seems to have been some social pressure put on the congregation. There were different forms of persecution, but nothing yet that has become deadly. Uh, and, and so the congregation is filled with fear and anxiety. They are troubled by the fact that they are not accepted by the broader community. And, and therefore, they're saying, you know, maybe, maybe it would be best for us if we forgot about all this Jesus stuff and just went back to being regular Jews. It would be so much easier for us if we did that. And the, uh, and the reason why that is important for us is because we are living in a time when our culture is getting more and more overtly unfriendly to the Christian faith, unfriendly to the Word of God, and, and we are also feeling increasingly, uh, it hasn't really gotten that bad yet, but it, we are increasingly feeling that tug, that sense that people don't like us. And, and maybe it would be better if we just toned it all down and, and just kind of blended in with our culture and therefore had an easier time of it. So, so this, uh, this letter to the Hebrews uh, really seeks to encourage us as well that we keep our eyes on Jesus uh, and, and continue to run the race that is set before us. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of wonderful application for us as Christians today as we pay attention to these words that are given to us through the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 12. 
Let's go ahead and turn to the text. This is Hebrews 12, beginning of verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's our text for today. That is Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 17. Pastor Turgeson, verse 3, the first verse of our text, starts, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Just in the previous verse, we were told to look to Jesus to fix our eyes upon him. Now we are to consider him. How does the author of Hebrews develop his thought here in verse 3? Well, all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he had to deal with unbelief, and not only unbelief, but hostility, all right? Uh, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Uh, and, and you see, for example, the, the constant refrain of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, and at every possible point, they seem to want to inject themselves to oppose Jesus, and eventually they began to plot his demise and destruction. And, uh, and so here, the, the disciples hear that the book of Hebrews was originally written to, and we are, con are, are to consider the fact that Jesus was in fact, constantly under the pressure of opposition, some of it very strong, mm. right? Uh, it says back in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So he is the one who began a good work in us, in our baptism, and he is finishing the work that he started. So Jesus is called the author and the finisher of our faith, and therefore if we are looking to him, 
and considering him, we are considering the one who not only brought us to faith, but also continues us in the faith and will bring that to its conclusion in the kingdom of glory. And it says, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of heavenly glory, uh, endured the cross and he despised the shame. That is, he did not let the shame of his crucifixion, suffering, and death, his resurrection and the blasphemy against him, he did not let him that hinder him from his work on behalf of sinners. And now he is sat at the right hand of the throne of God. And so this is what this is what the writer is telling us that we must consider that he he endured hostility of sinners against himself. Uh, and he doesn't want us to become weary and discouraged in our souls. Yeah, so the, 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 the emphasis here in verse 3 really does seem to be that endurance of our Lord. As you said, it connects us to verses 1 and 2, the endurance that Jesus had there to endure the cross, the endurance that the writer of Hebrews has encouraged us toward to run the race with endurance, now here, let us again consider the endurance of Jesus so that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted. And the, the reminder of what it says about Jesus as the, the founder and perfecter or the author and finisher of our faith, I think is a reminder that as, as we're considering Jesus with his endurance, he, he is an example of that, but he's also the source of that. So he's not only the example of the endurance, but he's actually the source of the endurance. Yeah, so sometimes uh, sometimes people get so involved in that fact that Jesus is an example for us that they forget that he is he is the living, reigning Christ, who is in fact the source and continuance with his grace and his gifts of all that we are and all that we can do and be. So he is the one who we must consider so that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted. And, and then the, the writer mentions what, what you said earlier, that in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So there is some persecution happening, some pressure being put upon them, but not to the point of, of martyrdom at this point. Help us into verse 4. Yeah, he, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed in your striving against sin. Uh, yes, the congregation has endured and is enduring some hard times, some opposition. There could have been things like, for example, um, slander. There could have been uh, mistreatment by neighbors, maybe, uh, maybe even physical violence. Uh, there could have been disruption of their livelihoods. Uh, the, any, any number of kinds of persecution that we have not yet necessarily experienced uh, in, in our modern situation, but the, the signs of it are certainly out there and coming. You know, when you think of the fact that there are people now who believe that if you are a believing Christian, you are not fit for office you are not fit to be put into any kind of position of authority, that somehow or other to be a Christian is to be uh, 
an enemy of the state or an enemy of society. Uh, and so that's the kind of thing that they were going on. He says, you haven't yet shed your blood uh, in fighting against sin. You have undergone persecution. And so going back to verse 1, uh, since you are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses back in Hebrews 11, where he goes through the Old Testament and shows all those who, despite their troubles and trials, held on and clung to the faith, he said, therefore, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily ensnares us and let us run the race that is set before, uh, set before us. So here, uh, we are not to allow the fact that we are undergoing troubles to keep us from running the race. Don't let the weight and, uh, and the sin that ensnares us to hinder us from continuing in the grace of God and continuing to serve the Lord and run the race set before us. It, it strikes me in the context of speaking to the congregation undergoing persecution, though not to the point of bloodshed, that he writes it in this way, that he says it in your struggle against sin. You know, he doesn't say in your struggle against your persecutors or in your struggle against the world, though though that is a, a struggle, but he, he specifically says it's your struggle against sin, which I, I think is a, a helpful reminder for us as we as we do undergo persecution, that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but it is with the rulers, the, the powers, the dominions. It's it's a struggle against sin that we are particularly engaged in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we always, as Lutherans, we talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil, you know, and uh, when we're striving against sin, we know that it is sinful for the world to oppose us, we know that the devil is, is the author of sin, and, and we also know that our flesh, the old Adam in us, wants to blend in with the world, wants to give in, and doesn't want to stand up and, and bear the cross and, and continue the fight. So, so here, we have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. We're not really... We're not really focusing on them, the, the yeah. them out there, but we also include the fact that there's something in us that would like to conform to the world. Yeah. You know, in, yeah. in the, uh, in the fir first letter of John, he says, love not the world, hmm. uh, you know, for the, uh, that's, that's not the love of God. Yeah. Uh, love not the world or the things that are of the world. So... And we, yeah. we feel a strong pull to love the world. Yeah, that's right. So, so it is a struggle against our own sin as well that is involved here, and he's encouraging them in that struggle. So he, he reminds them of something that he, he wonders, perhaps have you forgotten this in verse 5? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he, he gives them that exhortation that addresses them as sons, and it, it, he quotes from the Old Testament here. Help us into this exhortation that he reminds them of. Tell us the what it is, the context. All, take us into that old, yes. old Testament quote. So, so, so he basically says, now listen, guys, you haven't yet resisted to the point of bloodshed. And, he says, you have forgotten this word of encouragement that, that is written in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. 
uh, and and it addresses you. This word of encouragement or exhortation addresses you as sons, and that's the that's the important word here. Uh, that the that God is speaking to us in the book of Proverbs as sons. That is as His dear children, and it says, "My son." Do not despise the chastening or the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So now we have these words, chastening or discipline, Right, the Greek word is paideia, uh, and it can mean instruction, it can mean training, it usually means discipline, and here, because it's linked up with a word like being rebuked and scourged, it seems to uh, imply some tough times that have come into the lives of the hearers, and so. Do not despise, don't set aside, don't reject the fact that as a son, as a, as a dear child of God, you are being disciplined, you are being trained, and that this training is often unpleasant. And, and so here, what, what kind of d discipline are they experiencing? Well, all that we talked about so far about persecution, not yet to the point of bloodshed, but they are going through hard times. And they may be thinking something like this. Uh, you know, if we're really the beloved children of God, how can he be letting bad things happen to us? If, if we are the redeemed and the saved of the Lord, shouldn't our lives go well and shouldn't we be happy? And of course, Jesus speaks about his disciples as people who are called upon to take up their cross, to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow. So in our lives, what happens is often this. God's word is taught, and we receive it during the divine service, and, and we are instructed in the truth of God's word. And then either the world, the devil, or our own flesh come up against that word which we have received and, and, and act as obstacles. And now we are in a position of trial. Jesus, uh, Saint, uh, Dr. Luther said that there are three things that make a good theologian. Number one is prayer. Number two is meditation on the Word of God. And number three is trial. And, and those three things work together to bring us deeper into the faith and deeper into the knowledge of the Lord. So all of this here in, the, in, in this quotation from the book of Proverbs is referred to as discipline or chastening, uh, the chastening of the Lord. And it says, for whom he loves, he chastens. Why? 
because when we endure discipline, it is through this and, and how we cling to God's word while enduring discipline that we grow in our understanding and in our faith. Mm. Uh, this matter of discipline being connected to love, particularly the love of a father here, I think is an important thing that, that we should keep in mind in our world today, because it seems that our world today has a picture of love that does not include any discipline, that does not include any saying of no, or, or for, our, for our world today, it seems that love means letting me do whatever I want to do, no matter if it is destructive or not, it, love is just letting me do whatever I want. And I, so I think this passage, again, there's, there's a number of things here, but particularly just for that point in and of itself, that discipline comes out of love is something that we definitely want to hold on to and keep in mind in a world that tells us the opposite. Oh yeah, in today's world, if you do not only if you do not accept and like and embrace the sins of others, then you are a hater. Yeah. Uh, and you know we see this all the time. Uh, unless you accept me, celebrate me, and embrace what I do. You are the enemy. You are a hater. You are a person of hate speech and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's just part of what's been going on in our culture since way back in the 60s and stuff when the, the era of permissiveness, you know, the era of lack of discipline uh, that, that embraced our culture uh, came into being. And now, you know, we're seeing the fruit that it bears. If yeah, we don't go right. along, if we don't go along, we are not just wrong, we are the enemy. Yeah, yeah. And, and so again, in, in such a culture, particularly with, with words like this, it, we do well to hold on to these words, lest we fall into that same line of thinking, to the fact that when we receive God's discipline, we think that He doesn't love us. And of course, that, that is the, the temptation that's there. You, you described it a little bit earlier for the sake of this own congregation, you know, does does God not love us? Are we not His children if He allows these things to happen? And I think that's a that's a question that would have been asked by this congregation. It's a question that's been asked by many, many Christians throughout the ages, into the Old Testament and into the New, that when suffering comes, when persecution comes, what does that mean about what God thinks about me? What does that mean for His love for me? And so the, the writer of Hebrews is very helpful for us here, as he expounds upon this passage from Proverbs chapter three, to let us know that actually this is a sign of God's love. So let's 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 start into the way that he applies this passage. Now take us into to verse seven of the text. He says, "If you endure discipline or chastening, God is dealing with you as sons, as He would with sons. For." What son is there whom a father does not discipline or chasten? Mm -hmm. So just as we have discipline from our earthly fathers, so and, and, th and that discipline is an expression of the father's love and concern for us, 
that we may grow and develop in the right way. So it is that God here, when we are enduring trials, some of which are unpleasant, some of which are painful, if we endure chastening, God is allowing this and working through it to treat us as his beloved children. That is, he is knowing what we need in order for us to remain in the faith and to prosper in the faith, to develop uh, as children of God. You know, tribulation worketh patience. We don't like to hear that. We like to hear that the more happy and blessed and at ease we are, the better off we are spiritually. And modern spirituality is very shallow in this way. But here we are learning that one of the things that God does in order to season us and strengthen us and build character in us is he, he disciplines us as our earthly fathers would discipline us for our good, so God disciplines us for our good so that we may uh, be deepened in our faith and in our character. You, you can see how within this, this letter that the writer has set the stage for this instruction, even in that chapter of the, the saints of old who lived by faith, especially in that last very long list of, of ways that he doesn't name individuals, but he lists a bunch of ways in which people lived by faith. And he started that list by saying things like, they quenched the power of fire and they escaped the edge of the sword. And then it almost came to a crescendo, but it kept going with things that we wouldn't necessarily think as a crescendo, being stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. And and now he's he's using that in the background of what happened to the saints of old and the way they live by faith, now he's, he's telling the present congregation, hey, here's how you're going to live by faith as well. God is disciplining you through this so that you would live by faith, and he's got a goal in mind. It's coming out of his love. And so we're going to see how that love of God and the discipline that he gives is goal that comes in mind. We're going to look at that more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor William Turgeson this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 7th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 17 with Pastor William Turgeson. He serves at the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer in Peekskill, New York. Pastor Turgeson, prior to the break, we left off in verse 8 as the writer is discussing here what the Lord's discipline entails. And he says, well, what about if you didn't have discipline? If you, if you don't have discipline, that means you're not really children. You're illegitimate. You're not sons. Take us into the argument there. So he says, now, if, if you do not endure this discipline, if you are without chastening, of which all become partakers, that is, this is the common experience of all of God's people, is that he disciplines us. That is part of our growth in grace. Uh, and if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So if you, if you never go through a trial, if you are never exercised in your faith by difficulty, that is an indication that you are illegitimate and not a true child of God. Now, you can take that in, in different ways, but the idea that, that the writer is trying to, uh, to, to communicate against is this idea that true Christianity and real religion should always be offering me solace should always be resulting in things breaking in a good way for me, and that I should, since I'm going to have everlasting life in the kingdom of glory uh, and wear the victor's crown, therefore, believing in the Lord should be, and this is the false way of thinking, it should be that whenever I pray, whatever I pray for is given me, and whenever a difficulty rises, all I have to do is say, help, Lord, and immediately he steps in and takes away the difficulty and returns me to a what, what people often call a victorious Christian life, right? That the idea that a Christian is always supposed to be happy and joyful and that these things are not compatible with trial, tribulation, and trouble. And so here, the writer contradicts that kind of thinking, and he says, so if you're never being chastised, maybe you need to consider the fact that you might be illegitimate and not sons. So it's not really a Christian thought to think that we should be living in this world without discipline. Right. And, and there is, as you said, I think keeping that opposite teaching in mind that you were describing, the false way of thinking, is helpful for a verse like this so that we don't overinterpret it. If there is no you know, chastisement that I experience, that is an opportunity to examine myself. At the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that somehow I'm not a Christian because I'm not receiving some kind of overt persecution. You know, I mean, and I think that's where the previous chapter is helpful especially that list, there are times where we live by faith and God rescues us from the fire. And, mm -hmm. and then there are times where we live by faith and we go into heavenly glory through, through the portal of death. You know, and so any, I suppose either way is an opportunity for us to examine our hearts to see where the sin might be. But just because we're not being chastised 
at the particular time doesn't necessarily mean that we've fallen from faith either. The Lord, the Lord certainly blesses us with great joy in this life as well. Yeah, we're we're not necessarily supposed to be gluttons for punishment. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. But when the chastisement does come, right. we should not think that that somehow means God does not love us. He does. He is in fact treating us as His sons. And so then in verse 9, he, he brings up very particularly the example of the way our earthly fathers treated us and the way we responded, and then uses that as an argument from the lesser to the greater. Help us into to what he says there in verse 9. Okay, so he says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. So here, our earthly fathers disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So if our earthly fathers uh, uh, got respect, even though they disciplined us, how much more should we be in subjection to our Heavenly Father? He, he refers to the Father of spirits here. Uh, that's an odd way of saying it, but that, that, you know, what are the spirits? Well, the angelic spirits and the spirits of, of people. You know, we, we are people who have souls. And so here, uh, the father of spirits means, that's another way of saying our heavenly father. And uh, so here we go from the lesser to the greater. We've had human fathers who corrected us and we respected them. Therefore, we should also readily, readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits, to our Heavenly Father, and live. Yeah. Now, now he continues that argument from the greater to the lesser in the next verse, talking about the way that our fathers, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for this short time, according to their knowledge, what seemed best, but then God disciplines us for our good so that we would share in his holiness. So he's got a, a greater, he's got a greater wisdom and he's got a greater goal in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our earthly fathers did what they seen they deemed best for us, but he is doing these things that is in allowing us to endure uh, discipline and chastisement so that we will be profited by it, that we will continue in the faith, that our faith will deepen having undergone trial, and that in this life we may grow in sanctification, and then ultimately hereafter we will also be partakers of his holiness in a way that we can't even imagine now. You know, the uh, the, the Lord says that the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. So this partaking of holiness is something that begins in our baptism. It is continued throughout our life, and it is nurtured and sustained by the preaching of the gospel and, and by the Lord's Supper but it is brought to perfection in, in the age to come when the kingdom of glory dawns and we are revealed universally as the sons of God. Yeah, 
Yeah, what a what a wonderful thing that the Lord has promised. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, in, in verse 11, then, the writer says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, which I, I think is, is true both of the discipline that we receive from our fathers and or from earthly fathers and from the heavenly father. But he's, again, here's the thought of, of endurance, I think. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Help us into this verse. So he says, so what's obvious? You know, no chastening, no chastisement seems joyful in the present, but painful. So he's talking here, not, he's talking about what happens in the light of our instruction in God's word. So we hear the word of God, we meditate upon that word, we believe it, and then we are led out into the world where we experience trial. And this is often challenging and painful. And often we are confused by it and, and, and led to think that something must be wrong in my life because I'm going through this painful thing and God doesn't seem to be helping me. But it says that these experiences of trial, of, of discipline, nevertheless yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained or exercised by it. So, so tribulation worketh patience. That is, God is developing our character here and now. He is pruning away those things that, you know, we, we ought to see the troublesome things in our lives just because we've been instructed by the Word of God. But we are wonderfully capable of remaining blind to our own faults until something happens to show these things, to show us our weaknesses, and to show us where we need to really grow and develop. We also believe the Word of God very often in a... Uh, in an external and superficial way, but we need to internalize it more deeply. And so God allows these disciplines to come into our life so that afterward, even though it's unpleasant at first, afterward we are found to have been uh, developed, to have been pruned, and to have grown uh, through the training that we've undergone. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's all those all those images that the scriptures use. The the pruning one came to my mind, and the maybe the, the idea of weeding a garden. I think here the the primary one is the thought of the the exercise. You're thinking about the running of the race that was brought up at the beginning of this chapter. The the thought of the discipline that it takes to to run a race, especially a race of endurance. That's what God's after. And so those those moments of training for the race are not always the most pleasant, but they yield that that fruit. And and how much more then does God in his discipline of us yield again that fruit of righteousness in the training that he gives. So this is all, once again, not a sign that God has forsaken us, but rather a sign that God loves us and is leading us toward his eternity with him. That's the goal that he's got in mind, where we fully share in that holiness that he's already bestowing now in word and sacrament. So with that encouragement then, in verse 12, the author turns and begins a, a series of, 
of imperatives for his congregation, starting with this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Very much a lot of body imagery in there. Help us into those two verses, Pastor Churchson. Yeah, and verse 12 in particular is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 35. In Isaiah chapter 35, we have these words in verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, our God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so this is what this is what our author here is referring to when he says, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. He's reminding them of what Isaiah the prophet said and what was fulfilled in Christ, because Isaiah 35 is, is also the chapter that Jesus referred to uh, the disciples of John the Baptist who came with that question, are you he that should come or should we look for another? And then he, he lists all of the, the, the eyes, uh, the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dumb sing, etc. And so Jesus said, look what's being fulfilled in front of your very eyes, and blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me. And so here in this, he's referring to that same chapter which Jesus used to show that his miracles pointed to who he is and what he has come to do, that is to redeem us. Uh, And he's reminding them and saying, okay, so take heart, don't give up, make straight paths for your feet. You know, the temptation is that we should lapse into starting to walk in the crooked way that the world walks. Uh, And he says, uh, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed, right? So we need to stop stop yielding to the temptation that we are yielding to, which is going to lead us away from health. It's going to lead us away from the, the path uh, of the race that is set before us. We want to rather be healed, right? And, and so therefore, then he, he jumps into a few exhortations after that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think that the mention of verse 13, the straight paths so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed, there is this temptation to think that that sin will be an easier way to walk. That's often, he called them the fleeting pleasures of sin in the, the previous text. It seems sometimes that that's the easier path, that's going to be better for our feet, but rather, no, that's that's where you're put out of joint. So, so walk in the Lord's, the Lord's Word, that's where what is put out of joint is actually healed. And so there, again, the encouragement to keep running this race with endurance. Now, more, more exhortation here in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Take us into that. Okay, so one of the temptations that we, uh, that we often succumb to when we are going through tough times is to mark the people who are causing it and to begin to despise them or to hate them or to look at them as our enemy. 
and uh, and and this is a, a great temptation even for people who deal with their fellow Christians that there 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 is trouble between Christians and then we begin to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ as enemies and opponents rather than that we're all in it together and and so so what the the author here is saying is that we should pursue peace with all people even our enemies you know love your enemies do good to those who despitefully use you and so here the christian response to people who oppose us is not to make mark them as our enemies and to give back what we have been given uh, but to pursue peace to be at peace with them to love them and to desire their salvation hmm. what, what about the striving for holiness in the second part of that verse yeah uh, you know especially I think today people think that because we are saved by grace through faith alone that somehow or other that means that we shouldn't be all that concerned about the way that we live. Uh, it's very, very common to see that people are very, people who profess to be Christians and may indeed be Christians are notably unconcerned about the way that they live their life. And the truth is here that we are to pursue after holiness not in order to be justified before God, but that those who have been saved, redeemed, uh, reconciled to God by grace, live in faithful thanksgiving to the Lord. And, and in that thanksgiving, we want to be the way Jesus was. We want to walk in the law of the Lord the way that he did, not in order to gain merit with God, but as a thank offering and a life of praise and a life of service in Christ to our neighbors. So we are to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. As he continues then into verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral un or unholy like Esau. So let's take the see to it that no one does these things, all those things, and then we'll pick up the example of Esau that he brings up after that. Okay, so the first thing he, he says, look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. So he says that, that you are in danger, and we all are in danger whenever we complain and whenever we resent the chastening of the Lord, we are in danger of falling from the grace of God. And he says we don't want to do that. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. And then he mentions this, lest any bit root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. What he's talking about here is there seems to have been in the congregation either one or a number of ringleaders, uh, these embittered folks who were 
pushing the rest of the congregation to defect from the Christian faith and to return to their old way of life. And, and this root of bitterness springing up in the congregation causes trouble. And by this trouble that is being caused by this either this individual or this group of people within the congregation, and, and, and by the trouble that they have caused, many become defiled. That is, it's, it's doing harm to the body of Christ. It's doing harm to the faith of Christians. Now, then in verse 16, he also says, again, with a C to it, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So he, he talks about the sexual immorality, the unholiness, but he uses Esau as the example of these things. Esau, the one who sold his birthright for a single meal, and you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So what's he warning against for the congregation, and how does the example of Esau apply? In verse 16, uh, it says that Esau is somehow a fornicator and that he is a profane person. So he's lifted up as an example of what you don't want to be. The fornicator thing. Now that could either be a reference to spiritual fornication, which is the fact that he despised his birthright and was willing to sell it for a, a, a single meal, right? It could be spiritual fornication, or it could be a reference to the fact that in Genesis chapter 26, uh, we are told in verse 34 that Esau, when, Esau, when he was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, Judith the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basimeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. So he married heathen, two heathen women, and they were a grief to the mind of Isaac and Rebekah. So it may be that in the book of Hebrews here in our text, fornication it may be an allusion to the fact that he married two Gentile heathen women and caused, instead of, instead of refreshing the souls of his parents, these, these heathen women that he married were a grief to the mind of his parents. So it could be physical fornication that's being referred to, or it could be just spiritual fornication, because in the in the next phrase, he is a profane person. That is, right. he is a secular person, a person who who thinks in a worldly manner uh, rather than uh, in a spiritual manner. He, this beautiful messianic uh, birthright that is his for the taking. He possesses it. He's the one who's going to uh, further it on. He despises it and sells it to his brother Jacob, yeah. and he does so for a morsel of food, his birthright blown and sent away. And then it goes on and says, for you know that afterwards, 
So he regretted his, his work, and afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently, sought the blessing diligently. So he comes to his father, and, and after his father had already given the blessing to Jacob, and now Esau comes in with his savory food, and he presents it before his father, and his father's like, who are you? And he says, but uh, can't you give me the blessing? He says, sorry, no, I have given it to your brother, and your brother's it shall be. And despite his tears, despite his regret, he, and despite his seeking diligently for the blessing that was originally his, but that he forfeited, nevertheless, he, he did not receive it, but he lost it. And so Esau here is, is viewed for us as someone who we shouldn't be like. We shouldn't be secular-minded. We shouldn't despise what, what we have as an inheritance in Christ. But we should cling to these things and not let anything deprive us of them. Yeah, run, run with perseverance the race that is set. Do not grow weary, do not grow faint-hearted. Receive the Lord's discipline with joy. Pastor Turgeson, just about a minute here. Help us to, to wrap things up on this text today. Okay, so once again, we go back to the beginning of the chapter, and we are encouraged to run with patience the race that is set before us and to get rid of any hindrances to that keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. He that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that he does this is by allowing us to endure discipline or chastisement or training or instruction. And those these things may in the moment be pleasant, nevertheless, they have the good result that we grow in our understanding of God's Word, grow in character, and grow in, in, in our ability to endure hardship. Pastor William Turgeson is pastor at the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer in Peekskill, New York. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 17. Pastor Turgeson, thanks for being our guest today. Uh, God bless, Pastor Apple. God is treating you as sons. He loves you when he disciplines you. He is bringing forth the fruit of righteousness in your training that you might share in his holiness. Do not grow weary or faint-hearted, but endure looking to Jesus, not only as your example, but as your source of strength. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews 12, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.